This is the Physical Activity Researcher Podcast, a podcast for researchers of sedentary behavior, physical activity, and sports. Join for a relaxed dialogue about research design, practicalities, and, well, anything related to research. Learn from your fellow researchers useful and relevant information that does not fit into formal content and limited space of scientific publications. And here is your host, researcher and entrepreneur, Ollie Tikkanen. Yeah, I, I, I fully agree. Like, if you quit something, then you can focus on something else. For example, you shouldn't feel quitter because you quit your job, previous job. You started something new. So that that needs, that takes mental toughness actually to quit and put your effort into something else. So I think kind of this mental toughness and not quitting mentality, I think it's quite quite bad for many things. And a lot of it will depend on your motivation and your goal. Um, so for some goals, not quitting might be the right thing. If you are working towards the world championships and you've got a niggle the day before, for some athletes, we might say, go risk it. You've got this one chance go and risk it. If it fails, it fails, but you know. For other things, if it's just a small local race that they're doing, don't go and risk it. You can do another one a week later when actually you're in a good place. So a lot of it is that flexibility and intelligence about things and being able to take that whole environment and the context Yeah. rather than just being someone that's like, I do not quit. I am not a quitter. Yeah, yeah. It's like, well, that's going to get you into some really big pickles. Yeah. And if, if you think, for example, marathon running, basically you can do, I would say, one to three marathons per year that you can actually perform. So if you if you if you want to succeed on a marathon on a certain year and you start running a marathon and you clearly see that this is not the day that I can succeed or make a time, wouldn't it be best to actually quit before you destroy yourself too much that you need like two, three weeks recovery? and try again than just like do your best and actually do a bad time. It does mean professional athletes need a different mindset from age groupers. Um, There's often a debate in Ironman triathlon about the pros he might pull out after the bike if they're not doing well. And it will be like, they're not respecting the course. How do they know what else is going on? And it's like, they know their bodies incredibly well. They're training 30, 40 hours a week. They really do know themselves well. And if they know they are not in a good place to go and run a three-hour marathon, then actually they can go and do another Ironman in two weeks' time because they haven't put their body through a marathon. And that makes more sense for their career, for their sponsors. For an age grouper, actually, we might be teaching them to to suck it up or that sometimes... You never really know the bigger picture. There's a really lovely story I heard uh, that always reminds me about why you should, as a as a regular athlete, often we shouldn't make decisions mid-race that are quite dramatic. And it's um, in England, there's a race, a triathlon every year called uh, Windsor Triathlon. And it's, um, I've done it 11 times. It's an amazing race. and um, It's literally right in Windsor in front of the Queen's Castle. You go up and down in front of her castle four times on the run. It's beautiful. And back in something like 2003, 
it was a really big deal. It had prize money. It had TV cameras covering it. If you're a professional athlete, it was the one to do. And there were 19 guys in the elite swim, in the elite race. And um, the f they went off and there were 17 in a big group and then two guys way off the back. And the guy leading the big group took a wrong turn in the swim and they all came out way too early. The two guys at the back were so far back, they didn't realize this wrong turn had been taken and they swam the whole course. So, of course, the 17 go off on the bike incredibly fast in a great big group. The two guys, and you've got some out and backs on the bike, so you can see how far back you are. Those two guys must have been so disillusioned to realize they were way, way back. Because not only were they not drafting, but they'd also done the whole swim, whereas the other guys had only done half of it. And then on the run, the whole thing is out and back. You see everybody. They would have known they were 10, 15 minutes behind, at least. Really disillusioned. But the guy in 18th place crossed the line to discover the first 17 had been DQ'd for cutting the swim short. And he won all the prize money. He won the biggest race in the UK that year. Really cool. Came from nowhere. No one had heard of him before. Suddenly, there he is winning this great thing. Because despite that disillusionment, they didn't kind of go, oh, this isn't my day. I'll, I'll give up. They just drove forward. And I really love that as a reminder that sometimes we might get quite dramatic when we're in the middle of something and decide it's not worth it. We lose emotional control and we want to quit. When occasionally we're actually doing far better than we might think we are. We just don't know all the circumstances. Yeah. But I, I, I don't know if, if you need to encourage top athletes to, to be less mental tough or to quit more often. I think it's the opposite. Probably you need to like, come on, be, be clever. You're injured, do this and, and so on. And yeah, that's a, that's an interesting story. It doesn't happen too often. <laughs> it doesn't, but, but there's lots of smaller elements. I did a, um, I did the world long distance triathlon champs in, I think it was Almira, Netherlands, many years ago. And um, I had the worst swim you can imagine. My swim time was awful. I came out, I looked at my watch. I was like, is there any point carrying on? This is embarrassing. I'm probably ill. Yeah, I must have a cold. I've got something coming. I've really, you build all this in your head. The swim should have been 3.8K. They mismeasured it was 5K. So all of those things in my head about how awfully I was doing, I did, I'd done absolutely fine. But I didn't know all those details. And so instantly that negative self-talk in your head is incredibly fast at talking you down of, oh, you've got a cold coming. Oh, yeah, take it easy on the bike. And you can ruin your whole race by analyzing things too early without actually realizing what's going on. Yeah, I, I have similar feelings. I've been doing like martial art for the last last decade. Decade, and normally you train and you are kind of tired, a little bit tired all the time, less or more. And then when you have a competition or a fight coming up, the last week you decrease the training load, and your body starts to feel usually horrible. It feels like ah, oh, I'm so slow. I'm I'm horrible. And you just need to fight the feeling. You, I know that you will be in good shape in a few days, but it's it's always the feeling that when you decrease the training load, I think the body kind of shuts down or starts the recovery. I don't know exactly what it is, but you usually feel the worst when you start tapering. And 
you just need to know and trust it that come on it will be good just relax and and I, I think that's really really interesting because it happens almost every time and you feel like so slow you feel so bad you feel out of out of shape and it's it's funny how how it always comes yeah but that's where you need that self-awareness so um a phrase we often use is brace yourself so when you know something tough is coming up like oh god i'm at 18 miles in the marathon this is where it starts to get painful or um or yeah i've got four days of taper and i know i feel really bad for these four days that's where you can actually use the helpful self-talk of i was expecting to feel like this i'm supposed to feel like this this is what taper feels like and and you prepare yourself for it and we'll work with an athlete as that as part of their preparation for that um there's a brilliant athlete in the uk called lucy gossage who um went pro in Ironman for a couple of years. She's also an oncologist, an amazing woman. And um, when I interviewed her for something, she talked about the week before her race, she had a psychological strategy. So she would expect to feel that real lethargy and the heaviness and all of those fears coming through your head. And she would have written a strategy in advance for when I feel like this, I will do this. I will tell myself this. And that strategy can be really helpful because it helps you brace yourself for what's coming. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a good strategy. So you kind of prepare, you know that the feelings are coming and and yeah, that's that's a nice one. And if we move a little bit from the sports to exercise side, you have written the psychology of exercise book and then you're using the acceptance and commitment therapy. Do you see any any use of ACT in the exercise settings. How does it work there? We talked already about how it works with the athletes. How does it work in the exercise setting? Exactly the same, to be honest. So we would look first up at what barriers somebody has going on. Then we would look at kind of what kind of goals they have, where would they like to get to? And then again, we'll dive into their values. So how can they use those values to get there? Um, they might be slightly differently shaped. Um, I worked on a, a TV show recently where uh, they'd taken five volunteers to get fit and healthy after lockdown. And um, one of the participants just wasn't really engaging on the exercise side. So we used a lot of this. And you will then talk about things like why you really go into their why. What's their purpose for wanting to do exercise? Um, and hers was her grandchildren. She's got five grandsons. She wants to be able to get down on the floor and play with them. She wants to be the cool granny that can have kitchen discos and take them to the park. And when you really understand someone's why and what, I would say, twist their tummy in excitement. What's that kind of, oh, I really want that. That's what you pull everything back to. It's like, well, how do we use exercise to get you that? And then how do we design the right type of exercise to get you that? So it might be that hit classes, one, you hate them. And two, they're not particularly going to help you with what your specific goal is. They'll get you fit. But if actually what you want to be able to do is play football in the park with your grandkids, not going to be necessarily brilliantly helpful. But 
going to play football in the park with your grandkids will start to help or going for a walk every day so that actually you're slowly building up your endurance and will make it enjoyable because you can listen to a podcast while you do it. So you then find those values. How do you move closer towards them? We're, we're seeing a lot of kids coming out of lockdown here who've, or a lot of people who've put on weight over the last year. Um, a lot of just moving around less. For the first, our first lockdown, we were only really supposed to leave for exercise once a day. Um, and certainly kids had all their classes stopped um, and all their activities stopped. And so a lot are feeling very embarrassed about going into activity because they don't feel as fit or as healthy as they were before. They don't look the same as they did before. And so, again, it's about finding why they want to get fit and healthy. Is it so they can go back into the football team? Is it so they feel better when they're hanging out with their mates? And then pulling that back to, well, what's a nice way to help you do that? It feels too scary and daunting to go back to football class right now. Could you could you perhaps go running with your new dog? That would be a nice way that feels safe, but a nice way to build up that exercise again. Yeah, uh, talking about the COVID and the, the lockdowns, do you think we learned something from this? It was a kind of really big experiment a different kind of thing did we did we learn something about i don't know human nature or or something what do you think i think it will be a couple of years before we really realize um in both the good and the bad side so i often use this idea of kind of um growth through setbacks with anyone i work with of being able to look at that setback and really pulling out well what can we learn from it what can we take from it and there was a lot of a lot of athletes a lot of exercises I work with were able to see the positives I've realized I actually really value my sport much more than I ever did I've realized that what I love about my exercise is the walking group it's the other people I'm with and I really really miss that and I'm going to make more effort now to engage that side I really valued the friends that stayed in touch with me and I'm going to really use that much more so we did see people growing through it and realizing what mattered to them um but we will i think see some probably quite difficult side effects and impacts coming out over the next couple of years um with people struggling to socialize again um and feeling comfortable in socializing and probably quite a bit of social anxiety um And so the more we can use, I guess, exercise to help people realize what they can achieve and um, what they are able to do and to handle some of the depression or anxiety that might be coming out of it, that will be really valuable. So over in the UK, there's lots of talk about um, how can we help kids catch up with the schoolwork that was missed? And there's a huge amount of people saying, don't actually let them help out let them let's help them cope with the social side that they miss the sport and the activity and the fun that they missed out on that's going to be so much more valuable um than forcing them to do half an hour a day extra in classrooms mm. and i i think catching up everybody had pandemic in the world like it, 
do you need to catch up anyone? Everybody was in the homeschool. Like, I, I don't know why we make this story of catching up. It's like they are on the same line, uh, aren't they? Like, we just keep going. Like, one year in a human life, it's not that long. I vividly remember during the first lockdown, um, we were really struggling, both of us trying to work full time. I'd lost a lot of business because people weren't competing, so they didn't need a sports psychologist. Um, lots of corporate work fell off. I was really worried about how on earth do I carry on. We've got our four-year-old to look after. My husband's work was incredibly busy. It was incredibly stressful. And I went for a run one day and listening to a podcast. And on the podcast, I remember hearing somebody say, I keep having to remind myself, this is not a writer's retreat. I should not be churning out X amount of work per day. This is a global pandemic. I am allowed to act as such. And it was another light bulb moment of like, yeah, let's stop beating myself up that I haven't run a marathon in the back garden, that I haven't written six six books, that I haven't published X amount of papers or made more money in my business. It's a global pandemic. It's new for all of us. We're all finding out how to handle it. A bit of self-compassion here would be really helpful for everybody. Um, and that was really helpful to kind of go, yeah, let's just relax a bit. Um, and we have seen some people that have done phenomenal things. We've seen people setting new records and running marathons in back gardens and achieving fabulous things. And that's brilliant. But that shouldn't feel like a critique of those of us who haven't been able to do that because we had other things going on. This podcast is sponsored by Fibion. Uh, my name is Dr. Paul Batman, and I'd like to just say a few words about Fibion. Um, I've used it a number of times on different projects that I've been involved in and find that it's incredibly reliable, very valid and incredibly sturdy. I, I love the graphics that come with it. It really is very clear and could easily see the active in and active periods as well. So I'd certainly recommend Fibion to anyone that's interested in finding out more about sedentary behaviour, particularly the concept of sitting and how we can possibly break it up with some really good, valid information. Fibion, from researchers to researchers. Mm, yeah, we are we are quite obsessed of all the time performing, doing, doing, and it's maybe maybe some acceptance therapy could could do good for for all of us and. I don't remember was it some of my podcast guests, uh, but I think he mentioned that the students who are less less good in in PE actually the lockdown was good because they didn't need to do the PE classes with other students. I don't know how they were actually arranged during the lockdown, but it could actually be that it was better for them than the present classes. So. Do you see any any benefit of distance PE in some some situations or some kind of doing it independently? Anyway, when we get adults, there's no classes in that sense. Most of the people do go running or walking by themselves. So would it actually be good to teach this also in PE to take responsibility and go by your by yourself? I think I noticed where we live in London. The amount of families that were out together on bike rides or walks or runs was amazing. That was really good to see. So it meant those kids that might normally not like PE 
because they feel they're being judged. They didn't have that. They got to do it in a really safe, psychologically safe environment for them. So they could actually enjoy it more. Um, over here in the UK, we had this huge thing of Joe Wicks, who's a, a personal trainer, really, um, set up a daily um, YouTube half an hour session every day that if the kids were in school, they were doing it. And if they were at home, they were doing it. And it created just such a huge community of people doing activity together that it was psychologically safe. No one could see you. You were in your living room or your kitchen doing it, but you got to join in and feel part of something bigger. And I guess going back to self-determination theory then, you felt that sense of belonging to this community. He would have a million people a day doing his exercise video all together, tweeting about it, enjoying it, feeding things in, sending in messages. So for a lot of kids feeling part of that, they got to feel like something big and important, but they were also doing it safely inside the house without any of those fears or worries in a way that worked for them. Um, so I definitely think there were some benefits in that way. Yeah. I think it's quite amazing. You would think that if you're a coach or personal trainer, usually personal trainer is training one person and then you're actually training million people. It's amazing, every day. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. It's, I, I think we don't really see the possibilities of technology. We are kind of stuck in it. And you could also, it could be both ways that the coach can see you, they can give feedback. So, like if you are an athlete, for example, and you want, feedback from your technique from different experts you could have like a team of experts from different countries so but I, I don't know many athletes are are using this but with the fast connection you can have like immediate feedback and I think it there's a lot of possibilities yeah I mean I have some international athletes who um I've never met in person um every session starts with which country are you in today because they're all over the world competing and it's amazing that technology gives us those opportunities and certainly with things like pilates or yoga classes people are able to do lots of that kind of thing online but there is something that a lot of people really value about going to classes in person and it is the social side um, that keeps people keeps exercise sticky to a lot of people that makes you want to go back. You're not going because you massively enjoy the class. You're going because you get to see your friends and you get to go for a coffee afterwards. And so that bit, I think, has has been a struggle for many people over lockdown. And um, it's really lovely to see coming back as the gyms have opened here. Um, I see everybody going to the gym to, to see their friends. And then there's there's a cafe across the road that everybody goes to afterwards. And and that kind of shows how exercise can be a really important part of your life in a way that's not about being hard work or any of that toughness stuff. It's about finding something you love and building a community around it. Mm. Yeah. And how, how do you think, like, we didn't think earlier that you can personally train million people at the same time. Do you see something scalable in psychology Usually counseling is one-to-one. -one. Would there be some way that you could provide valuable information for one million people on a daily basis? There are a few app companies that are trying 
things like that. I mean, Headspace has been phenomenally um, successful in in doing that with mindfulness. Uh, the start of we had three lockdowns in the UK. The start of the second one, I was feeling like a chocolate teapot because I was like, I really want to help, and I just don't know how. Um, and someone asked if I would do some psychological ideas that might help through lockdown, and so I came up with um, ten tools to. Um, get mentally fitter in lockdown but would also help you afterwards and I actually ran the session four times in the end um and we had I could only take a hundred on my my zoom link but each one sold out within hours and so actually they were very generic exercises techniques you could do it was quite general information but because there were 10 different things you could try it meant someone could take something from that that would be like yeah that's the thing I want to try that's what might help me with my anxiety building my confidence managing my perfectionism better um and the feedback from those was really really lovely um so it felt like I could give something in a way that I hadn't before but actually then everyone can take they just take one thing from it fantastic they can go off, they can be a little bit more psychologically informed, they can understand themselves better, and they've got a nice tool that will help. Yeah, so you were kind of forced to figure out new ways and you were able to scale psychology work to that you were having 100 people in a Zoom meeting. And, I, and I'm in a dilemma now of whether I go back to face-to-face work. In some areas, I think it can be really helpful. Um, when you've made somebody cry on Zoom by asking a question that clearly got to the heart of an issue and all you want to do is give them a hug and hand over a tissue and you're on the end of a Zoom channel, that's tough. But when you're working with teenagers, which I do a lot, and you're working with incredibly busy people, which I do a lot, them not needing to leave their house to do a session actually means they're more likely to do it. And it means the homework that you give gets started straight away rather than getting lost on the tube on the way home. Um, so I think there are some actual real positives to it. And for me, it means I can work with the athletes I work with anywhere in the world. I've got lots of athletes in Australia, some in America, um, lots of different places in Europe. And that that means we can work on different time zones really easily. And they can get me when they need to between sessions, between competitions in a way that wouldn't be possible face to face. So are, are you mainly doing this counseling work with athletes or are you also doing with people who just need to exercise? Um, actually, my split is probably three ways. So probably about half my work is with athletes. Um, and then the rest is split between those with exercise addiction um and uh kind of disordered eating like red s and um uh, with those who are not athletes at all um but want to perform at a higher level in whatever they do so we use very similar techniques um but they might be an entrepreneur they might be um a tv presenter um so actually it's it's much rarer they work purely with people who want to exercise And it's a bit of a conundrum that it's probably where sport and exercise applied psychologists could be most valuable. 
we have a huge obesity problem in the UK. We have a huge under-exercising problem. Exercise psychologists could make a massive difference and could turn it around if there were enough of us, but there is no one to pay for it. People might pay for a personal trainer. People are very unlikely to pay for an exercise psychologist to get them into the right headspace to exercise more. The government wouldn't pay for that. A few gyms might take somebody on. Um, but how do you, again, how do you scale it so that it's cost effective? So I have yet to see a job advertised for an exercise psychologist. And I don't know how you would make money doing it. Yeah. And how, how do you see, how do you see the role of if you want someone to exercise you doing counseling work or achieve their goals? How do you see the role of, of measuring, like measuring activity or it's it's one part of the kind of building motivation that you actually know where you are you can see the progress you can set goals that are based on data how 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 do you see the role of measurement i think measurement is incredibly important for just those reasons you said it's very motivating to see where you were and where you're going where it can get tricky is when you end up measuring yourself against somebody else because they've got a very different background to you. They've got different genetics. They've got different a different journey to where they've come from and what they're doing. Um, so when we can keep people measuring themselves and their own activity, that's very helpful. When they start comparing, it's unhelpful. Where we need to be very mindful is around people who are over-exercising. And things like Strava I think can be very unhelpful if you have some of those addictive tendencies and when you have some unhelpful beliefs towards exercise they can be really unhelpful so if a belief towards exercise is exercise isn't effective unless I've made a puddle of sweat on the floor Exercise isn't effective unless my heart rate was at least 165 for the whole session. Exercise isn't effective unless I've done at least an hour. So all of those that create a lot of rigidity, maybe coming back to that mental toughness of the rules, when you're following those and then you use measurement to track it, it sucks all the joy out of exercise. And you're doing it because you have to and because there's a compulsion. And you're not doing it because you're getting genuine benefit from it. Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. And and for for my own, own training, if I'm one day I'm really slow, I have a really bad day. I always think that whoa, I've been training very good the previous days because I am so tired. Other people would think that oh, what's what's wrong? I I always consider it as a good sign that if I'm going really slow, it's it must be good. Brilliant. I like that perspective. Yeah. And so you said that you shouldn't compare to others. You should just compare to yourself and you shouldn't have rigid ideas about kind of what what exercise or training is. Do you have any other tips how the measurement should be used and how it should not be used? I really like kind of quite specific goal setting. But we're very clear when we set that outcome goal that it 
should ideally be involving something you can control. So I'm quite mean, but when my athletes have got a competition coming up um, and we work on the goal for the competition, the one rule I have is it cannot be to win. Because they've got no idea who else is going to rock up or who else, particularly at elite level, you don't know who's been doping and you're comparing yourself to somebody else that's cheating. Um, so the goal has to be something you are in control of. If we can measure that, brilliant. Because then you can see how far off you are. But often we'll use self-measurement tools. Um, so I do a technique with anybody, exerciser or um, athlete, um, that's kind of a, a performance profile of where do you want to be in six months' time? Okay, somebody who's done that, basically you in six months' time, what have you done to get there? So not what do you think you need to do, but actually looking at that person at the end of the line, what 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 will they have done to get there? And that pulls out very specific elements, like they will be getting as much sleep as their body requires. They will be fueling every session. They will have worked on the key techniques that are required to be to master this sport. And then they, they probably usually have about 20 different things. And then we look at how important they think that element is. So from zero is there through to 10 is definitely you cannot achieve this goal unless you are doing this. And then we have the honesty bit of where are you at this moment right now? And so that's all their own measurements of whether something, what something is in the first place, whether it's important, whether where they are. And then we take away where they are right now from 10 and multiply it by how important it is. And that will give us 20 numbers that we can kind of rank where we should be focusing our efforts in their training and attention. And we'll pick only four or five, top four or five, that will make the biggest difference to their performance. And they go off and work on those. And they've got a load of autonomy because they came up with those themselves. They've measured themselves and they can see doing these will make the biggest difference to how well I am able to do. And then we can keep measuring it by, okay, you said you were a two last time. Where are you on it now? Okay, so maybe we don't need quite so much focus on that now because you've built it in. It's a habit. Let's pick the next thing on the list. So it's a really nice process of measuring, but measuring what matters to them. Yeah, I, I like it. Very, very practical, but but useful, useful approach. Uh, I think we are closing our time limit so good to start wrapping up uh where do people find you where do you want to direct people if they are interested working with you or they are interested of your books how people can contact and find you um so i've got my my brand new website only launched this week um so uh it hopefully looks a lot better than my last one did um it's performanceinmind.co.uk um, on there, there's a section called Performance Zone, and it's got tons of worksheets and blog posts and videos and things that um, are free to download and use. Um, and lots of those are helpful on the exercise side um, as well. But it's also got links to being able to buy my books and to learn about the services that I offer. Great. So, performanceinmind.co.uk. Performanceinmind.co.uk. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. It was it was a pleasure talking to you. So thanks for taking up the time. 
Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us this week on Physical Activity Researcher Podcast. If you like the show, make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing or following the show on Twitter. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you for your support. If you found value in the show, we would really appreciate a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever app you're using. Or if you would, in a real old school way, simply tell a friend about the show. It would be a great help for us. We have a fantastic lineup of guests for forthcoming episodes, so be sure to tune in. Thank you all for your support and have a great day.